you go to the center of your Bible, you'll probably end up in Isaiah. Keep going a little bit towards the, uh, the right, and you'll get to Jeremiah, and then you'll find Lamentations. Lamentations will be, as I said, in chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. Here's what's interesting. I uh, titled it A Christian's Elegy. Uh, it's, it is uh, Jeremiah's elegy, his mournful, poetic response to what's going on. So there's a couple things that stood out to me as I, as I read this, and it was kind of nice to not have 60-some chapters to try and boil down to one sermon, only five. Um, and, and it enabled me to read it over and over again. And here's what I thought. This guy, for 40 years, had warned a people consistently, faithfully, directly, the Word of God says X, Y, Z. Oh, people, please turn from your false gods. Oh, people, the Babylonians are coming. Oh, people, see what has happened to your sister nation. Oh, people, return. Oh, people, get rid of all these false gods. Forty years he has done that consistently over and over again. He didn't have Pastor Appreciation Month. I don't think so. I don't think he got the nice cards and little gifts and gift certificates that we get for being pastor and wife. Um, instead, he got thrown into a cistern. He got beaten. He got, uh, he got uh, persecuted in all manner of ways. And then it happens. So humor me here. But then it happens. And I wonder what he was thinking. It happens. He sees it. Let me give you just a few dates here. Uh, Isaiah lived 740 to 680 B.C. Jeremiah followed him 627 to about 580 B.C. We read in Jeremiah 39 in chapter 52 uh, that Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem. That happens, and, and it's great. We start to get a lot more external evidences of the history in the Bible uh, along with uh, secular historians about January of 588 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem. Almost two years later, July 19th, 586, uh, the city falls. Uh, then in August 15th, the city, the palace, the temple, it is raised, it is burned. Um, so this beautiful city, beautiful palace, beautiful temple gets overrun by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah beholds it. He sees it. Now, if you've had a child or if you've loved a brother or sister close to you that has suffered any debilitating sin, maybe it's an addiction. Sometimes sins are easier for us to see and notice. If you've loved a person that has wrestled with a besetting sin uh, and you have found yourself at times begging and warning and pleading and you feel yourself at times when you go to talk to this person, they don't want to talk to me. They don't want to listen to me again. I'm going to point out what they're doing wrong and how this is going to end up. And they're tired of hearing it and they're tired of listening to me. Uh, and, and then it happens. And then you see it happen. And then that person comes to you and says, oh, these horrible things are happening to me. I don't know why they're happening to me. And in the back of your mind, you go, I do. I have told you time and time again that this is the path and this is where it's going to lead and this is what's going to happen. I feel like that's Jeremiah. But what's beautiful about this? Jeremiah doesn't sit back and say, 
I told you so. Wish y'all would have listened to me now. Who's the idiot now? Who's the false prophet now? Where are your gods now? He doesn't sit back smugly and say, y'all had it coming. Serves you right. No. He writes this poem, and it's beautiful. It is a beautiful piece of work. It's hard when we translate from Hebrew into English, but if you've looked at your Bible and you've looked at these five chapters, you'll see the chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 all have 22 verses. And if you were to look at it in the Hebrew, those 22 verses, each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's alphabetical. And so in some sense, the author here is writing this poem to be memorized, to be sung over and over again. Uh, and he is writing it, and in some sense, it's the A to Z of the suffering of God's people. And it is his elegy. It is, what do I do when life, when, when God's justice, when his discipline when his heavy hand of holy, righteous love and discipline comes out upon us, how do we, in a sense, how do we mourn? And that's what we have before us. We're going to be in chapter 3, and chapter 3 is the longest of the chapters. It's 66 verses, and so in chapter 3, every third verse starts with a new consonant. So again, it is poetic. Uh, and it is, it is beautifully, wonderfully written, and it is meant to be remembered. Um, I don't know if Christmas time of year, and you, you watch movies, and you see movies of Jewish families with their little, uh, whatever that's called. What's that called, yarmulke? Yarmulke, yeah. I have a picture somewhere of me with one of those. This Jewish guy come to church and give me a menorah and a yarmulke. Uh, you see those movies, and then you see them sitting around the table, and they'll read or they'll sing things um, in Hebrew, and the little kids will do it, and, and again, it's part of their culture. It's to remind them of who they were as a people. This was part of that for the people. This was part of what they were supposed to remember, what they were supposed to recite, what they were supposed to annually read out loud together. So we're in chapter 3, and chapter 3 really is the hinge. So I'm going to give you just a brief outline. Chapter 1, first 11 verses, Jeremiah laments. He talks about this is what happens in Jerusalem. Here is the destruction of Jerusalem. He cries out in verse 12 of that first chapter, the city itself is personified as a woman. So uh, if it gets confusing when you read it, the city itself is uh, as if the city is a woman crying out, all these horrible things are happening to me. And then in chapter 2, you have a detailed description of God cleansing the city. So in our family, we have thought if Marvel ever needed Tammy Kuyper to be an action figure, she would be known as the cleaner. She has come to clean house. <laughs> Germs beware. Rodents, excrement, beware. The cleaner has entered. And that is Tammy Kuyper. That's the joke. Our kids would always say, okay, here comes cleaner. You know, and um, so, uh, but in that sense, in chapter 2, God himself is saying, I am ridding Jerusalem, my precious city. The prize, the beautiful city in my eyes. I am ridding it of everything that is profane. And so in chapter 2, he's cleansing it. Everything evil. He's putting, physically, he is putting a stop to religious practices going on. Stop doing these practices that you think are working. Stop integrating the current religion of the nation with the religion of a holy God. He forcefully removes not just the people, 
But the king, the priests, the prophets destroys the temple, the walls, the palaces raised. What is going on there is laid out in chapter 2. And those responsible have, in a sense, been forcefully removed. They have been taken out of the city. God is cleansing. In chapter 3, we have then our text, which is this prayer for mercy. Verse 18 verses, it's Jeremiah's personal connection to the misery. Here is what is happening. Here is how I feel. Here is how I am responding as I watch what goes on with the people of God. Verse 19, where we'll pick up in a few minutes, is this abrupt turn reflecting on God's character in our text this morning. Chapter 4, he recounts the siege of Jerusalem, talks about the horrific things that were going on in the siege, but also a warning for Edom and all of those who took advantage of the people of God. And in chapter 5, he ends with this beautiful prayer of restoration. So we are in chapter 3, right in the middle of this poem. Uh, And the question I want us to think about is, how do we mourn? How do we lament? What are we to do when we see and know that this is the wrath of God, that this is the discipline of God? What are we to do and how are we to respond? Uh, Lamentations 3, verses 19 to 24. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. How are we to respond Uh, to the Lord's discipline? Do we respond by saying it's not fair? We're not as bad as the other folks? Do we respond in our thinking of, God, you have now abandoned me? Do we respond in despair? It's all over now. It's too late. I know I shouldn't have done this. I've done this. It's over. You respond with thoughts of we'll never recover. You respond with thoughts that this proves our God isn't as gracious and as loving as we thought he was. Well, though the present in Jeremiah's day, is bleak with judgment. The future for a Christian always, always sparkles with a promise of hope and restoration. The promise for us is as certain as the dawn. The last few weeks, if we looked at Isaiah and Jeremiah, I have reminded you of what a prophet, the nature of prophecy is. We've said that the prophets would make short-term predictions and long-term predictions. The short-term predictions, when they came true, they instructed the people of God. The short-term predictions have come true, therefore I can trust the long-term predictions. Jeremiah sits and he sees these people, and what is he saying? He's saying, the short-term predictions, what I have told you for 40 years, has happened. Therefore I have hope. (laughs) What I warned you has happened. Therefore, I have hope. Why can he have hope in the midst of it? Well, our text tells us why he has hope. But think about some of the words that Jeremiah has spoken. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah 31. So just as Jeremiah said, the Babylonians are coming, you will be carried away. The worship will stop. The temple will be raised. Uh, 
I will, I, will, I will remove all of these things in that, in that same manner. He's also said what we looked at last week. The days are coming when I'll make a new covenant. My covenant that they broke. For this is the covenant I'll make, he says. I'll put my law within them. And I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah is able to look at this and say, Though the hand of God is painful and heavy, His prophecies come true. In the same manner that our God prophesies judgment and discipline, in the same manner that our God tells us, I discipline you because I love you. If you're not disciplined by me, the chances are you're not my my kid. You're not my child. That same God then has these promises. And so uh, Jeremiah is able to look back and say, I have hope. So what's our elegy to look like? Well, it, it, it should have, as I have the sermon in the sentence, it should, it, should, it should have kind of its guiding principle, this sentence, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Scotty and I have this joke that we talk about ne'er-do-wells. It's one of our favorite phrases. That person is a ne'er-do-well. How often do they do well? Ne'er. They ne'er do well. They've never done well. They don't do well. Our God never ever, ever forgets his steadfast love. How do we mourn? How do we handle upheaval, turmoil, brokenness, loss of life, pandemics? How do we? We relax. We rest in the steadfast love of the Lord. It never ceases. So in the midst of this, the prophet sits amongst smoldering ruins among the cries and the lamentations of the poor, the innocent. And he says this in his mind. He's like, I know God is in control, not Nebuchadnezzar. I must let the discipline do its work. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's got to be the truths of God that guide us through all seasons. But for some of us, especially during trial. So I've just put these verses in three separate categories, and it has to do with remembering. The first is that we remember the hard times. So think of it this way. In Jeremiah, the prophet is looking forward, and he's saying to people, this is coming, and I'm going to try to explain it in a way that, that, that shocks you. I'm going to try to explain it in a way that tells you you, 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 you should return now to the Lord. Uh, and, and he's looking forward to it, and he's painting it as vivid as he can and using as much emotion as he can to say, Oh, people of God, dearly beloved, he will not let you continue in this path. And now he's looking back. And he's like, As I see this destruction, I get some glimpse of how horrible sin is. Now, you remember, we talked about some of the things that were going on, children were being slaughtered. They were being killed in order to win the favor of the gods. All forms of sexual dysfunction and abuse and prostitution, all, that, all, all this is going on. And we get a picture in the fall of Jerusalem of what our God thinks of the evil of mankind and what it takes to cleanse the evil of mankind. And so uh, the first thing uh, that we do in our elegy 
the first thing that we do in our mourning and our lamenting is we remember the hard times. It is, it is common for us to do everything we can to forget the hard times. I got about eight Christmas cards yesterday. Not a one of them had a horrible picture of the worst thing that happened during that year. <laughs> no one sent me a picture of their roadkill dog. Here's what happened this year. You know, uh, I want you to remember this. You know, this was a this was a terrible year. This is what this. No, nobody sent that. Right? We send pictures of wonderful things that we want to remember, that we want to put on the fridge, and we say this is a great year, and we want to post about it. Want everybody to know we had a successful year. All these wonderful things happened. Jeremiah is saying, no, no, I must remember. We must remember. Right? I, I, this year, crashed my bicycle. First time I got out to ride my bicycle, I remembered that crash. I remembered how goofy it was. I remember the, how the pain and the surgery and all that stuff. And, and it had had an effect on how I rode my bicycle. I rode it like I was 125 years old and that I was riding on ice. Right? It had some effect as I remember. We call it PTSD. There, and I don't mean to make light of it, but, but it's a disorder that tells us something went wrong and I remember it. My whole body remembers it. And he is saying, we must remember the hard times. And so verse 19 is this idiomatic expression of hardship and bitterness. Remember, he says, the wormwood and the gall. The wormwood, a bitter herb. What were the people of God to remember their whole time during Jeremiah and Isaiah? During the whole time of the kingdoms? What were they to remember? They were to keep a feast of Passover. What did they do in the feast of Passover? They celebrated their rescue from slavery. The Almighty God, by His own power and His might, not because they were worthy, not because they were the greatest following people of all time, our God said, I will rescue you and I will soundly defeat the gods of Egypt in front of you. And you will remember this. You will have every year, you will remember it. Your family will gather. You'll have a lamb's blood put on your household. You'll eat bitter herbs to remind you it was bitter when we served the gods of Egypt. It was bitter to us. We are to remember those things, and they didn't remember those things. They didn't keep that feast. They didn't draw themselves closer to God. They didn't remember who He was and what He had done. They didn't pass it from one generation to the other. And Jeremiah's like, remember it. And we must remember it. So he writes this poem. He wants them to remember it long after he's gone. Remember this. Remember how bitter it is to walk outside of the community of God. Verse 20, it is ongoing. My soul, he says, in the depths of me, it continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. Again, I just have to say this. Jeremiah is not self-righteous in this either. I'm a part of this people. And though I, I faithfully, faithfully preach the word of God to them, my soul is bowed down in humility before the living God. Remember the hard times. And I would say unto here, let discipline do its work. It's hard as a parent or someone in control and in charge to let discipline do its work. Parents, let discipline do its work. When your child sins against you, against God, against their classmates, when your child lies, cheats, and steals. Not if, when your child sins. Let discipline do its work. Let the misery settle in that they might remember. This is what it feels like to live outside 
of the direction of God. For us, let discipline do its work. We push it off in all different ways. Well, God didn't really intend for that. He's not in control of that. It's just the way the world is. Let discipline do its work. Bow your soul before the Lord and taste the wormwood and the gall. Where have I turned from you? Have I forgotten what I was supposed to have learned? But we don't stop there. In fact, the whole book turns with the next verse. The whole book turns with, again, we find this all the ways in Scripture. Here is what is true. Here is what is going on. And then the prophet says, but this. And I know I've heard it from people that, you know, if you're confronting someone, everything you say before the word but doesn't count. You know, son, you've done a good job with this, 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 this. But, and then the kid's like, oh, here it comes. (laughs) It's the opposite here. Remember the wormwood. Remember the gall. You are suffering. You are facing the, 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 the beautiful, pure, holy, loving discipline of God Almighty. But remember this. We remember the hard times, but remember this. Verse 21 to 23 says, but this I call to mind. Here's what I remember. As I am watching God carry out what he said he would do on these people. As he has patiently endured years after years of watching his covenant babies being slaughtered. His name be profaned. His bride turn herself to other lovers. I call this to mind and I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord doesn't cease. His mercies don't come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Christian, we do not stay. We do not stay in that season of mourning and discipline. We do not endure our mourning and our discipline as some way of paying for our sins. We let it do its work, and we remember our Lord. I find Christians at times that cannot let go of previous sins, terrible things they've committed against people that they've loved, and they have struggled to believe that God would forgive them and cleanse them, but they're to move on. They seem to wallow in that sense. But the writer here is saying, no, this is what we are now to call to mind. We don't stay there. We don't live there. We visit it, and we remember it. But when we do that, we also remember our God. A couple things I want to say about this memory of God. The first are his acts, his acts of covenant love, his acts of steadfast love never, ever ceases. Secondly, his acts of compassion. What he says here is mercies. They never, ever come to an end. Indeed, your faithfulness, O God is great. Now, this language, and Jake will talk about it in the coming weeks, we've had a lot of talks about covenant and covenantal love. Uh, this, this phrase, poetically, of how he is saying, this is what I know of our God, it's not just something new that he created. It's not just some poet, poetic way of putting it together. It's very covenantal. Exodus 34, after the golden calf incident. Okay, so think what's going on here. God has written with his finger on stone, something to be unchanged, to be memorized, to to hold on to. Here is the covenant I'm making with you. Here is what I'm asking you to do. Here is who I am. Here is what I've done. Here is who we are to be. Uh, they, They break it with the golden calf. Moses throws it on them, grinds up the calf, makes them eat it. I mean, it's just this, (laughs) it's a butt-kicking area of the scriptures. God comes back to Moses, does it again, and writes uh, the tablets again in verse 6. 
Moses says, tell me your name. The Lord passed before him and he proclaims this. This is my name, Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Jeremiah says, I remember the Lord, and therefore I have hope. I remember who is in control in the midst of the smoldering city, and therefore I have hope. Why? Because God's faithfulness is great. Not our faithfulness, His faithfulness. He is consistent. He acts the same way towards the humble and the penitent every time. He is stable. He's not moody that has these swings and changes his mind. He is truthful. What he says will happen. His word is done. It is accomplished. He is permanent. The gods of man will come and go. He is reliable. He doesn't break faith with his people because of who he is not because of who we are. And so Jeremiah is sitting in the ashes, hearing the cries, remembering the wormwood and the gall has hope. Why? Because he remembers the Lord. He thinks about the Lord. But what else does he do? Well, lastly, in verse 24, he remembers the prophecies. What is this in verse 24? Uh, uh, The Lord is my portion. He doesn't say, well, there's a new election coming up, and we're going to make Israel great again, again. (laughs) He says, no, the Lord is my portion. And again, that that has such, uh, uh, such weight throughout the scriptures. Numbers 18. Uh, Israel's been taken out of their bondage. Uh, They're traveling from the house of slavery to the promised land, and they're getting instructions on the worship of God. In Numbers 18, the Lord says to Aaron, uh, he says, now when when you go to this new land, uh, Joshua's going to divide up the land among all these different tribes and clans. Uh, They're going to divide it up, and it's going to be fair, it's going to be even, they're going to be cities of refuge. I mean, it's just this beautiful plan. Um, But then he looks at Aaron and he says, oh, but Aaron, you have no inheritance in their land. I've never liked that because for some reason, you ain't no kind of man if you ain't got land. That's what I've always thought. And I have a postage stamp here in Grove, America, in the middle of the Cherokee Nation. But uh, I've always wanted land. And I remember reading that like, wait, am I the new priest? Can I get a piece of land? Aaron, you'll have no land. Now for them... Of course, the land, really, it was their 401k. It was their social security, right? Their land meant we will produce crops. We'll produce animals and plants. We'll feed ourselves, and and we'll trade, and and it's the way for us to make a living. And God says, Moses, tell Aaron that the priests aren't going to have that. I am their portion. So Jeremiah, what does he say? I have great hope in the Lord, for his love is steadfast. And if this city is never rebuilt, it doesn't matter. 
If I end my days in a prison in Persia, in Babylon, I, it, it doesn't matter. For my hope, my inheritance, is the Lord God himself. Psalm 73, the writer there has the same idea. Psalm 73 could have been written by Jeremiah. It, it, it's not, but it could have been written by Jeremiah uh, because he looks at the wicked and he sees that, that it seems like everything's great for them. And then the psalmist goes into the temple of the Lord and he realizes their fate. And when he gets to verse 26 of 73, the psalmist there says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jeremiah has hope because he remembers the Lord and he remembers his prophecies and he knows that God himself is his portion. And so the interesting thing as we think about Advent, I was reading through Luke, but also Matthew records this. Uh, Jesus looks over Jerusalem and in Matthew 23, Jesus looks over Jerusalem, and here's what he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, I told you at the beginning that uh, the Jewish communities, they recite lamentations. Part of the reasons they recite it is to remember the fall of Jerusalem in 586. The other reason they recite it is to remember the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You see, Jesus stands in line there uh, as Jeremiah is a type for Christ. Jesus comes in flesh and blood and he warns the same people. He gives severe warnings and prophecies in Matthew 20 through 24. Here, here are the things that are going to happen in Jerusalem if you do not turn. It's so similar to what Jeremiah is saying. Jerusalem, it's going to happen to you. Return, turn, turn. He comes to this 23, uh, 37. I would have you, O Jerusalem, come back to me. Return to me. And what happens? 70 AD, Jerusalem falls again. And it is brutal. It is horrific what happens. When Jesus says to them, you see this temple and how beautiful it is? Let me tell you, not one stone is going to stay on another. And they look at him and they say, oh, he's going to tear down the temple. Well, you know what happens in 70 A.D.? The temple catches fire. You know what happens to all that beautiful gold filigree when it gets on fire? It melts. What happens when it melts? It gets stuck with the stones. You know what happens when there's gold stuck among the stones? The Roman soldiers come and they pry apart every stone, taking it apart, literally taking it apart. What does that mean for us? Jesus, prophet, priest, king. We can believe the rest of his word, too. We can believe everything else that he says. I am going to come again. And I will gather you to my side. And I will wipe every tear from your eyes. And I will be your God. And you will be my people. 586, 70 A.D., 2021, how do we find in our elegy this hope? Well, let me just put it out to you very basic. As we come to this table, as we prepare to come to this table, I want you to think about every warning 
that scripture, the Holy Spirit that God has put upon your life. Every time there's been a tap on your shoulder or a prick in your spirit about a direction, about sinful behavior, about hope, about idolatry, our sins deserve what happened in 586. Our sins, the people of God. See, this isn't the Babylonians. This is the people of God in Jerusalem. This is the Jews in Jerusalem. Our sins before a holy God deserve the same manner. But Christ took it. What's different in our story than these stories? 70 AD, the Romans came through and wiped it out. 586, Babylonians came through and wiped it out. For us, Christ himself was wiped out. Christ himself took the wrath and curse of God. Christ himself on that cross suffers. And if you don't think our sins deserve suffering, then you've got to read Jeremiah. You've got to read it and say, here's, here's what they deserve. You might not like it. We don't like it. But, but it's what God, God says. This is what your sins deserve. And yet Christ took it upon himself. What does that mean for us? Well, it, it means we, we do remember the discipline of the Lord. We still stand under his discipline. We remember who he is, a God full of steadfast love, whose mercies are new every morning, whose faithfulness is great, who as a prophet keeps his word to the letter. We remember his prophecies and we worship him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this time of year. And we pray, Lord, that we would look back and remember that when the time had fully come that you sent forth your Son, born of women, born under the law, that he would redeem those under the law. That we remember a time in history that we can look back and say, our, our God came to win salvation for us. He did what Jeremiah was unable to do. He has done what we are unable to do. He has kept the covenant to the letter, in word, in deed, and in sacrament. He has kept the covenant. And the punishment of our sin had fallen upon him. That these were the things your prophets foretold. Isaiah foretold it. That you would be pleased to bruise him for our iniquities. And yet, Lord, as your people, at times we, we forget. We just don't think of it. We don't see our salvation as being this wonderful rescue from a holy, righteous terror of facing you on our own. Help us to grasp it and to understand it. Help us to have an appropriate memory of the discipline, the wormwood, the gall. Help us, Father, to always rest on your faithfulness and to worship you above all others. Prepare us now as we take this sacrament. Rest upon the body and blood of our Savior Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.